Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing lovely. Thank you very much. How much coffee have you had today? Uh, I've already had uh, a a full pot. um, (laughs) And uh, when the podcast is over with, I will be uh, 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 brewing my second for the day. I I watched a 60 Minutes episode where they talked about longevity. And apparently, like, drinking a lot of coffee is actually pretty good for you. And drinking alcohol is good for you in moderation. Um, I think you used the key phrase, moderation. Yeah, you're not you're not moderate in your coffee drinking. You yeah, you're just going to live forever because you're just going to live forever. But but not because of coffee. Like other people, they said it was like two to three cups, and I laughed because I don't drink any, and you drink seven thousand cups in a day. And I thought, well, if you split the two of us, we would live forever. But. But you are in significantly better shape than I am, which is why you will last a lot longer. But anyway, they also said, interestingly enough, they suggested that slightly elevated blood pressure was actually good for you when you're older. These are all people who are being studied in their 90s. Yes. Um, and, and so it was a really cool kind of thing. And I thought, yeah, but like, I, if you have blood pressure, your entire high blood pressure your entire life, that's probably not a good thing. So Again, that comes back to the key phrase, moderation. <laughs> exactly. I don't do anything in moderation. Um, actually, that's not true. I do lots of things in moderation. Okay. So today we're going we're gonna to talk about the, I think I'd like to think of it as the, the last part of our first foray into the New Deal. I know that at some point we've got other topics that we want to we wanna talk about within the New Deal, but, but this is the one that I find um, very exciting because it's sort of this I didn't realize how controversial it was, and I want to get to that way at the end, but the first thing I want to um, start off by saying is we're going to talk about the TVA, right, which is the Tennessee Valley Authority. That is correct. And can I tell you what I know about the Tennessee Valley Authority? Yes, please do. Uh, Oak Ridge. That's it. That's all I know. It's, I mean, I've read your notes, so now I know more, but uh, until, until I read your notes, I really wasn't as familiar. I knew it was sort of a, I have this vague idea that it's a power thing, like it creates power. And yes. that's it, right? Like, that's all I know. And I know that it was in the Appalachians because it, it runs along the Appalachian mountains. But beyond that, I didn't really know until I was looking at your notes. So I'm excited for us to share all of this information with, with our, and by the way, Oak Ridge was where they made plutonium uranium one of the things that explodes atomic bombs which i am as chemists everywhere are wailing right now i'm uh i think it's uranium now that i think about it but it could be plutonium anyway it's one of the it's one of those things that you don't want to mess with because it will make you sick but they enriched that during the manhattan project right at at oak ridge at the oak ridge uh uh, facility uh in tennessee correct um, but but that's not the main focus of TVA. It's just the thing that I remember it for. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Uh, Nia, your intro went ahead and like touched upon basically 
four or five <laughs> major themes um, uh, 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 of the podcast episode. Yay, um, come me. I made an abstract without trying. Okay. Uh, uh, which, which, which was rather impressive because as, <laughs> as you were speaking, I'm like, okay, well, she touched upon that. It's kind of sort of like the opening slide in a PowerPoint presentation. What we're going to talk about today, exactly. is, is, that was basically what you did um, in your intro. Un unintentionally, uh, sorry there. And, 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 and I was just like, wow, the next time I do a PowerPoint slide presentation, I'm going to want Nia um, <laughs> to put together my that first slide right after the title slide, right? Because I always struggle with putting that the one together, but you did an excellent job. Ah, thank um, you. So uh, uh, the TVA, uh, as Neil pointed out, um, uh, uh, is uh, uh, another one of those New Deal programs. Um, and uh, thank you, President Roosevelt. Yep, uh, it, it was uh, definitely um, uh, something that came from the Roosevelt administration. So the TVA is a federally owned uh, electric utility corporation. So the first thing we should note about the TVA is that it is considered um, as a type of government agency, it is considered a government corporation, meaning that it receives no taxpayer funding. It was created by the government, but it is um, uh, supposed to be um, uh, uh, fully self-funding. Oh, so like the post office or Amtrak, those kinds of things, although they aren't self-funding because they, they're holes into which money is thrown. Uh, um, yeah, because although the, the post office would be doing okay if it didn't have that weird thing where it has to fund its retirement out 400 years or whatever it is, like some ridiculous. Yeah, so listeners, see our previous podcast yeah. episode about the United States Postal Service. And our bitterness thereof. Yeah, the, the, the United <laughs> States Postal Service is the only corporation in the United States that is required by law to have on hand enough cash to cover current and future retirement liabilities. It's the only corporation. Right. Now, that's not saying that that's a terrible idea for all corporations, because then people would be guaranteed from their of their retirement. Yes. But it does cause you to uh, often run in the red. Yes. Now, Amtrak. Uh, but anyway, Amtrak is. <laughs> Amtrak's a whole different animal. It's just. TVA, unlike those other two. Has been historically profitable. OK. And, and when we discuss. The, the full scope of the TVA, I think, uh, Nia, most of our listeners will understand why it's been so fully, it's been so profitable over the years. Okay. So Tennessee Valley Authority is a, is a misnomer, right? It's not just Tennessee. Okay, but it, it, it covers a part, a geographical region of the United States. Right. Known as the Tennessee Valley. Okay. Okay, but the Tennessee Valley okay, includes not only basically the most of the state of Tennessee, but it also covers um, um, uh, other parts of the country, including small areas of Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia, 
but it has larger portions of Alabama, Mississippi, and Kentucky. So basically, folks, um, for those of you who might know the uh, Appalachian Mountain region of the United States, it covers a big chunk of the southern half of the Appalachian Mountain region in the United States. But more specifically, you know, if you were born and raised there, you would know, you know, this is the Tennessee Valley area. Okay. And side note, um, for anybody who is wondering about the pronunciation, those are the Appalachian Mountains, as according as pronounced by them, and Appalachian as pronounced by everybody else. So if you go with the local pronunciation, we pronounce it Appalachian, and and that I yes. say we because I am from the foothills of Appalachia, um, yeah. in North Carolina. But uh, the I think most people know the Appalachian Trail. That's what they think of when they think they yes. think of the long hike. And it goes from Alabama to Maine or something, some incredibly, I'm going to walk a trillion miles from here to there and eat lobster and then walk home or whatever. Um, but it, it, uh, so this is, is a middle chunk of that. Yes. Southern uh, and middle, southern, and, southern chunk of that, really. Yeah, southern. A little bit of the middle. The, yeah, yeah a little bit of the middle. Um, uh, but Nia, as you pointed out, it was created uh, by the United States Congress in 1933 at the request of the Roosevelt administration. Um, it is, there is actually a law and uh, we'll put this in the research guide, the Tennessee Valley um, Act, okay? Um, its initial purpose was quite broad. <laughs> I mean, it was supposed to provide navigation, flood control, generate electricity, manufacture fertilizer, regional planning, and economic development in the Tennessee Valley. And Nia, okay, why was the United States Congress at the request of FDR so interested in doing all that stuff in the Tennessee Valley? Um, one, the Tennessee River was traditionally used for navigation and, and yes. trade. So it was known to people like, so you're not building a thing that's not, that doesn't already exist and isn't already used for that. But I'm assuming because of the crushing poverty that yes. the Appalachians experienced, not just then, but pretty much like up until the, this fixed some of it, but like some of it lasted into the 50s and 60s. And some yes. parts, of, parts of Appalachia even now are crushingly poor um, and, have, and have little access to healthcare, little access to, uh, to it, services that most people who live in less rural areas think of as quote, quote, normal, right? The, there's a lot of, there are some real pockets in the, even still in the Appalachians that are not, that are not connected to other by any number areas. of measures yeah by any number of measures there are still pockets of the Tennessee Valley um, that um, uh, compare rather poorly to the rest of the, the country so yeah. Nia um, 
So I'm going to talk about today, and then I'm going to go back to when the, what the conditions were um, when uh, the TVA was uh, proposed. Oh, but okay. He, but even today, Nia, okay, um, in terms of educational um, attainment, uh, the Tennessee Valley uh, ranks uh, uh, quite low. Um, in terms of uh, employment, um, uh, general uh, uh, public health. Um, um, life expectancy. Uh, life expectancy. Which is quite low, I think, relative yeah. to everybody else. To the other parts of the country. Even something like uh, the digital divide. Um, uh, yeah. um, uh, the Tennessee Valley, you know, struggles in regards to access to broadband, the internet. Um, in many ways, um, it's always been a part of the United States that has been shut off um, to the rest of the country. And Part this, of it is physical isolation, right? It's, yes, it's it is it is a it is a difficult terrain to navigate. Right, it's remote. Yes, it, um, and so there's that. That's part of it, and part of it is, and I do not mean this pejoratively. Please don't, uh, listeners, if you're from Appalachia, I love y'all, um, but those communities are often insular in the sense that they do not want outsiders, they do not like outsiders, and they do not welcome outsiders. If you have not lived there for 200 years, if your family's not from the area, you are immediately met with suspicion. Um, in yes. one of our previous episodes, we talked about librarians visiting those areas. It took a while for people to warm up to the book ladies. Like they weren't sure about these people um, because <clears throat> traditionally outsiders have meant trouble. And yes. so they just tend to be rather self-isolating in many instances, intentionally so. They don't want, they don't want a lot and of it, outside intervention. And a number of scholars have chronicled that those first settlers in the Appalachians and in the Tennessee Valley specifically, um, you know, were folks who did not like government. So they moved and, and to, still are. Yes. And they moved to very remote areas um, in the hopes that they basically would be left alone. Um, and that's part of their culture. But in the 1930s, particularly during the Great Depression, this was an area that even compared to the suffering, you know, in the general population, the Tennessee Valley was really hard hit. Um, well, part of it too wasn't, wasn't hadn't they sort of depleted um, soil in the, like they were starting to see crop um, yields drop and things like that, right? Because of poor farming practices. Yes. And that sort of thing, which was hurting them, like even for raising food for themselves. Yes. Let alone so, to mean, sell. Nia, you're correct. Uh, almost all the research that I did mentioned that the Tennessee Valley, uh, much of the land had been exhausted because of poor fam uh, farming practices. Um, so the soil was eroded and depleted. Um, crop yields had fallen. Um, so farm incomes plummeted. Um, 
And as a side note on that, sorry if you don't mind me interrupting, crop no, rotation is a modern concept. Like yeah. that was not, people didn't rotate their crops for, Jefferson did because Jefferson understood, like he experimented, he was a scientist. He was also highly educated. Um, and he experimented a lot with Monticello, but most farms, that's not how they ran. You just had two fields and one year you, you might plant two and one year you might plant one, but you didn't rotate in other crops that would help reinvigorate the soil. Like they didn't know any of that. So they didn't do any of that, which. In, in crop rotation, and, and I've tried to explain this to students, Crop rotation requires a certain amount of wealth because when you're rotating crops, either you're bringing in new crops, which requires a capital investment, or you're basically setting, a so setting aside parts of your land to not be used. So that requires you to have some wealth, some savings is you're basically taking out of rotation for a year, you know, a growing season or two or three land that you would otherwise use. That's an excellent point. Okay. So, yep. you know, Jefferson could do that. Because he had a lot of money. Yeah, he had money. But for, you know, poor, you know, farmers in the Tennessee Valley, okay, what you know what they grew not only fed their family and their livestock okay but it was their source of income so if you took out you know a part of your land from use it was going to cut into your income yeah people are if you say to them you're going to go three quarter time they're kind of like oh i get time back and then they're and then you say you're also going to get three quarter pay they're like whoa wait what because yeah, yeah. Right, like, oh, yeah. I get to do less work. Oh, but wait, I get less money. Right, those yeah. things go hand in hand. So, yeah, this is also an area that is heavily forested. But what? I think was was because heavily forested. Maybe your you know best the best timber had been cut, and again, we know we now know this, and we see this with some regularity with the forest fires out west. Um, you cut the best timber, and what you're left with is timber that is very susceptible to fires, right? Right. Okay. So, and you were seeing that with some regularity in the Tennessee Valley. So, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. But, but, but also, you know, you and I have also uh, uh, mentioned uh, public health concerns. Tennessee Valley had a malaria infection rate during the early years of the Great Depression of 30%. 30% of the residents of the Tennessee Valley had malaria. Three in 10 people. Yes. And we're not talking about Panama. We're talking about Tennessee. About, yeah, we're talking about Tennessee. You know, we're, right, we're like, talking, you know, in, you know, in the guts of the country. Yeah, not where you would expect to get malaria in the United States. Like most people don't think malaria, I'll go to the United States and get malaria, right? Like that's not a, I think most visitors don't think that's probable. And when you think about 30%, that's enormous. And then you think about the, 
treatments that it, it involves and poor people like it right it's just a horrible cycle of yeah and again this is a population that is very skeptical of outsiders right so you know if you know public health okay and if officials were coming in i mean we see this even today in regards to you know doctors and medical uh, staff going into um, uh, uh, sparsely populated areas in developing countries. They're not trusted. They're an outsider. Okay. You want me to, they, you, they you, brought you, this disease with them. That's what happens in people's minds is yes. you're here to fix the disease. Oh, you must've brought the disease because those two things happened at the same time. Same time right? And so in people's minds, they become conflated. And what you see in a lot of third world countries is I won't take your vaccine because it's giving people the sickness yes. as opposed to it's I'm here because I'm trying to prevent more spread of the sickness. Yes. So you see so, that a lot in people who are like, eh, I don't know about this trust thing. Um, okay. But but can we, though, so Roosevelt looks across the nation in, in, in the Depression, and he's like, this is bad. This is really bad. We need to have all kinds of programs to help people, and we need to put people to work and that sort of thing. So he says, and in the Tennessee Valley, we need economic development. Right. We need yes. to do something that will help spark. Well, it, it was not only that, Nia, there was also a growing movement in the country in regards to the government being responsible for electricity. Because, as you know, you know, one of the large issues in the 1920s and into the 1930s was that many utility companies were privately held by the private sector, right? Because electricity is a commodity that you can sell. It, it was a commodity, right? And, and, and that was intention with, intention with or in conflict with the fact that you know, most of us need electricity. Right. Right. So is this a public good or is this a private good? And, you know, we could have a debate about this, but that's one of the core debates, okay, among economists and whether or not the government should regulate something. Is this a public good, which should be protected for everybody in the public? Or is this a private good, a commodity? If you use more, you pay more, right? Um, and right. if I'm a and if I'm a company that has sunk investment costs in providing the source of the electricity, the distribution of the electricity, should I not be able to charge what the market will bear? So this was becoming a huge issue. You know, this was becoming a huge issue, in particularly with the depression, right? You have all these people who are losing their homes, their land. They can't put food on the table. But when we had this, these privately held utility companies that weren't lowering their rates. So Roosevelt comes into office and says, I have this severely economically depressed area of the country. And the government needs to push back against all of these privately held utility companies. 
and this is an area, the Tennessee Valley, that has access to water. Right? Hydropower, hydropower. Hydropower, right? Okay. And the solution, okay, was the Tennessee Valley Authority Act. Um, we will bring electricity to the region. We will bring yes. power generation to the region, which will also help with economic development, right? Because as if there are if there's power generation, then a, then a company that makes steel can build a a company can build a plant because and then they will employ local people because there's power to uh, how, how can i put if there's no power to where you live then a company can't build a company there because they can't build anything yeah. unless they build stuff by hand with wooden tools so unless it's an amish company you're not going to see a lot of companies or corporations going where there's no power similarly they will not go where there's no water this would have both right it would have power it would have water because almost every industrial process also requires a fair bit of water yes so that's why you don't see lots of huge companies out in the deserts you see a few and they are often run by solar power in an attempt to right because that's a strength of the desert Yes. But they also are dry, what I call dry industries. They're industries that don't require water in order to make something. That's right. Um, but but at that at this at that point in U.S. history, okay, that's a few years down the road. Right. What we do know, you know, what was known at that time was, if you have a source of water, um, and a large population that increasingly was un or underemployed. Well, the thinking of the Roosevelt administration was, this is an opportunity for a grand experiment, right? We don't have to rely upon the private sector to provide the, you know, the, the utility, right? Because the private sector looks at that and says, that's a great opportunity, but the, in, the co upfront cost is going to yes. be enormous. enormous, right? And most companies can't are are not willing to go to their board of directors and say, "Hear us out. We'd like to spend six trillion dollars. I know that's going to put us in debt for the next ten years, but it's going to turn out really well. We think, right? Like the board of directors is going to be like, "Get out of here, bozo!" Like that's not that's not yeah. how companies what, what work. Is yeah what is the guaranteed return on the investment right okay and building a power plant in the tennessee valley might have offer, worked out but it might it not have worked out certainly didn't offer a guaranteed return on the investment exactly right? but the roosevelt administration was was like we're the government we can do that we we we're the government we can we, do this we build stuff all the time that doesn't work out <laughs> right okay <laughs> so uh, almost immediately i mean within a year the tennessee valley authority was employing nine thousand people nine thousand people right nine thousand locals because locals they did yes. have some people that they brought in right from like for administrative positions or from other or, places because you need experts yeah, you know, experts in regards to hydropower, ex a lot of agricultural experts. They oh. brought in a lot. They brought in a lot of people from the Department of Agriculture 
to basically reteach the farmers how to farm. Or better farming practices, let's say. Okay. That. Well, I mean, but I mean, hey, in some cases, you're basically telling, you know, family farmers who generally, generationally have been doing the same thing for three or four generations. Yeah, the way you've been doing it is wrong, which didn't necessarily always go over well, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, outsider. I can't hear you over the sound of yelling, get off my land. Okay. But Um, they also, you know, taught, you know, uh, foresters, okay, how to do it better for the land. They also oh, planted how a whole not bunch clear of trees. Okay. Yeah, okay, they planted a whole bunch of trees, okay? Cool. Um, and once they developed, okay, the power, guess oh. what? Wait, I want to ask you a quick question before yeah. you, you get into what I think is going to be the next cool thing that I'm also interested in. Um, where was the headquarters of the TVA? Initially, it was Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Okay. Do you uh, know what else is in Muscle Shoals, Alabama? Oh, so many right. things. I'm adding a very open-ended question, but I'll bet you know. Well, that. I mean, for me, and I don't know if you're doing this on purpose, um, it is the home of some excellent blues music. That's right. It's okay. the, it, the Muscle Shoals recording studio Dude, uh, brought in uh, the greatest names in music in yes. okay. the 30s, okay. 40s, 50s, and 60s to record there. And yes. stuff, stuff that Rolling Stone said that it changed their lives to go to the to go to the Muscle Shoals recording studio. I can't remember which one. There are several recording studios there, but yeah, that's where There's, all yes. of that comes out of just anyway i think it's cool that they put it there but then they eventually moved right to yes knoxville yeah they moved it to knoxville knoxville tennessee okay yep it makes sense from an administrative point of view knoxville is um is more centralized than centralized and you know yeah you have the university of tennessee there right um if you've ever been to Knoxville, I mean, it, it is a good-sized city um, in eastern Tennessee. Yes, I've been there a number of times, <laughs> um, particularly for college football games, um, which, you know, their stadium has holds well over 100,000 people. Oh, are you kidding me? That's <laughs> Their stadium is, is like what um religious sites are for oh i mean religious it, it, people that's a football religion place yes. like you go there and you're like ah because it's yeah. saturday saturday night okay in yeah what do you mean you're doing something other than going to the football game what's wrong with you yes oh you're staying home and watching the football game on tv oh okay right like that's uh, yeah. the that you don't have a choice but anyway i thought muscle shoals. i thought it'd be nice to mention muscle shoals to folks yes. um so uh, so anyway, they so these things come together, water, and we build a hydro dam, and now we have power, and we get. Well, then you start getting like a whole bunch of other industries. I was going to um, say, this should be a crazy amount of industry, right? Okay, well, th- this goes back to your point, right? All of a sudden, now you start you, uh, you start seeing textile plants, um, um, and. And again, these are textile plants that 
for nearly a generation and a half provided jobs in the Tennessee Valley. Now, many of them are now where? Oh, I'm assuming Bangladesh and Thailand. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're overseas. overseas. Yeah, they've been outsourced, right? But, um, but another company that was there. <laughs> I can I mention you, them? Can I yeah, mention go them? ahead. Alcoa. Yep. If anybody Alcoa. doesn't know what Alcoa is, Alcoa is an aluminum, is an aluminum company. Yes. And aluminum takes a huge amount of water oh. and a huge amount of power to make. Like, yes, aluminum is a very uh, resource intensive industry. And it produces a product that lasts forever. And, and is in everything. Like, it's in everything in the United, <laughs> in the United States kind of sort of rose to the forefront of the nations of the world in producing high quality aluminum products. It, it, it was just, it, it was amazing how this all came together, okay? But I mean, Nia, within a decade, there were 12 hydroelectric plants, one coal-fired steam plant, um, just in terms of construction, they had hired 28,000 people. It was, Which is exactly what it needed to do. Like it, yes. it changed, okay. it, it changed it, the region in, in terms of, um, I mean, yes, there's still crushing poverty in pockets of the region, but the vast majority of that region has been lifted out of poverty basically due to this basically due to yes. to yes. the to the floor that that um that roosevelt put underneath it but um it's not all good is it no can before we before we get to that can i ask you though about the board of directors because you have an interesting note in here Yes. About the board of directors of the TVA. So okay. the board of directors are, they're nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. But what I think is interesting in your notes is that a minimum of seven of the directors are required to be a resident of the service area. Yes. So you can't just be living in California and be appointed to the board of directors of the TVA. You have to be directly affected by the decisions you make yes and the things that you do on the board i really like that i really think that that's it, it, it's it, an important it, um check or balance on the idea of we'll just play around because enron did all kinds of crazy stuff with the with the utility in california and they didn't live in california yes. they lived in new york so they weren't affected by the brownouts and the rolling blackouts and the this and the that. None of that, none of that well, bothered them. And this is, not only is it a check, but it's also a way to get buy-in. I mean, oh, think about it. Excellent okay? point. Seven out of the nine directors have to be residents of the service area. So how better to go ahead and get buy-in than to go ahead and guarantee slots on the board Okay, for in many cases, local elites. But if the local elites are willing to go ahead and serve on the board, might this not be a good thing for the Tennessee Valley? 
Well, and it also prevents that sort of parachute in from Washington. Yes. Do a you thing know, regardless just, of what the local population wants, needs, wants or cares it. about, and then parachute back out. Well, you don't yes. parachute out. You, I don't know how you, you extract. Yeah, um, but I mean, but, 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 but the logic is spot on there, right? Um, I would actually like to see that with more um, federal government um, uh, boards, governing boards, right? I would too. Okay. You have um, to be somebody who's got skin in the game, as it were. Yes. If we're going to talk football. Yeah, um, I mean, no, exactly. got to have, yes. you, if you live there and whatever you're going to do is going to cause rolling brownouts and they're going to happen at your house too. <laughs> you may have a whole different point of view about that than you would if it's going to happen to some other guy somewhere else, right? Like that's that's and, just and if okay. From, everybody here is going to feel the pain. Oh well, maybe I don't like this pain nearly as much now. And if you're from the area, you might be able to go ahead and pause and say, "Hey, wait a minute here. This is going to affect okay the folks this way, and I right. know it will." As I was born here, I was raised here, I went to school here, right? Okay. I know the ins and outs. Okay, I'm hearing from farmers, okay, you know, this is what they need or what they don't need. Um, you know, will textile jobs be good? Will, you know, alum aluminum manufacturing jobs be good? But when they brought Alcoa there, okay, that's when the federal government started thinking, hey, wait a minute. If this particular industry can thrive in the Tennessee Valley, you know, what other projects we seem to be working on during World War II that is energy dependent, <laughs> might need significant amounts of water, okay, and draws upon the same kind of scientific knowledge. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what I think is also interesting about Oak Ridge is yeah. and uh, interesting about the Manhattan Project in general, because part of, part of it also took place in eastern Washington state. And that is the idea that these are relatively well at the time. They're not now, but at the time were relatively remote. Yes. Like the, the likelihood of being spied on, being caught, having anybody figuring out what you're doing. Like now we think, sure, I could drive over to the Tennessee. Of course you could. You can drive over to eastern Washington. But getting through the pass at East, in, from western Washington to eastern Washington back in the day was not a simple thing. That was a long, drawn out, complicated process. And you had and to for, do it at the right time of the year or you weren't going to get through. So, and, for, and for our enemies... Okay, logically, it makes no sense to go ahead and build an atomic weapons plant in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, again, think of, you know, think logically of your enemies, because your, your enemies would go ahead and assume, well, it's got to be built somewhere where there is a lot of knowledge and technical expertise, et cetera, et cetera. So it's probably going to be close to government agencies or colleges and universities okay because you right. need you know a lot of smart people right okay and smart or you people, could just or you could just pick them up and take them to tennessee plop okay. them down and say go yes. to it so you know logically <laughs> it's just like hey you know nothing's going on here it's tennessee valley nothing happens here right it's economically depressed we're not hey ma nothing's going on here 
That's right. right. Nothing to see. Move along. Move along. Right. Okay. The other good thing is that if you're in an area like that and weirdos, strangers show up, you, you'll be like, who's that guy? What's yes. he here for? Right. Yes. Strangers will stand out more. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting yeah. thing of a, like a confluence of events that came together. But I do. Um, it sounds to me, and I'm betting one of your objections or one of the things you're going to mention as an objection, because they're not your objections. You were not alive then. You did yes. not object to this. Um, but I'm <laughs> guessing one of the objections at the time would have been, this sounds like commie socialism, pinko, government intervention, yes. and the market rules, and what's wrong with you people? Yeah. Am um, I right that that's one of the... Yeah, the... The Objections. Existing, yeah, the existing <laughs> uh, private utility industry um, had some strong objections um, uh, because they thought that um, the, the provision of, of, of electricity was uh, a private good. It was a commodity um, that the government should not be involved, um, that if uh, Americans wanted cheaper electricity, um, they would indicate their desires in the marketplace and the industry would respond accordingly. So that was one objection. Then this whole idea that the federal government would be a jobs creator. I mean, come on now. I mean, you know, in capitalism, the government is not supposed to be a jobs creator. Okay. Same the argument for the WPA, which is. It, yeah. I mean, the, you the know, market prevails. Yeah, right. So we have an economic downturn, a rather severe one, but we have an economic downturn known as the Great Depression. Eventually, though, okay, um, those with wealth will reinvest. They will produce goods and services um, that the public will want. They will have to hire more people to produce those goods and services, and the marketplace will return. So, you know, this whole idea that the government, okay, would create one, get into the power producing business, you know, the pro production of electricity, okay, was a problem. But then two, the fact that the Roosevelt administration was never shy, the TVA was going to be an economic development engine for this depressed area of the country. So this violated, you know, all kinds of capitalist principles, and <laughs> this has got to be socialism. And okay, you know, why aren't you letting the market respond? So there's the economic theoretical. Now, then, then they we, went. Can to, we side note something? By 1933, yeah. we are four years into this depression. Yes. I mean, we're four years into people struggling, right? Because Hoover didn't do anything. Yeah, Hence Hoover. Hoovervilles. Hoover, Hoover was a, the market will correct, the market will correct. He, yep. he kept saying the market will correct itself. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse because the market was not correcting itself. Um, proof that capitalism occasionally needs a goose, right? It needs to be goosed. It needs to be... Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if you think about the Marxian critique of, of capitalism, eventually the worker class will revolt against the owner class. 
but you know what Marx could not have foreseen was how many Western democracies would interject safety nets and laws and regulations that mitigate the worst outcomes of capitalism. Um, you know, that's where you get the phrase or the concept of regulated capitalism, right? We don't allow capitalism to engage its worst tendencies or pathologies. We try to mitigate or soften, okay, the worst externalities of the market. So that the people don't overthrow the overlords. Yeah, there you go, right? It's in people, it's in the wealthiest best interest to interest. have a safety net. Yes. To, to prevent allow, the yeah, to, to prevent the, the rocky ground from forcing people, yeah, to to, to you know to, to allow the occasional government foray into. <laughs> and know, now we've now we've moved into classes and Marxist theory, and we should move back out of that. You and I could talk about that for four or five or ten episodes. Yeah, we um, should probably go ahead and wrap up with a couple other trenchant criticisms. Right. Okay. First of all. And this was a big one. Um, and even advocates of the TVA or supporters of the TVA have recognized that this was a huge problem. The TVA was given authority in law to use eminent domain. And for our listeners who don't know this, this basically means that the government has the authority to take private property and use it for quote unquote public use. And the, they, they have to pay you what's quote, quote market value. Yeah, just compensation. Yes. But I'm going to argue that in this particular instance, market value of dirt that is completely worthless yes. probably wasn't very high. High. So it, they probably According didn't to some... pay a huge amount to these farms when they took them. According to some scholars, over 125,000 Tennessee Valley residents were displaced by the agency. I mean, just right, because sorry, we should note that one of the things that they did when they built dams was they built reservoirs, like it backs up the reservoir, it builds a reservoir. And when, yes. you, when you build a dam and you make a reservoir, you flood the area behind that. Well, if that's where people live, then you have to move those people and you have to buy their farms and you have to move them off that property so that you can flood that land and not, you can't just flood land and kill people like that. Yes. I know the government probably occasionally wants to do that, but they can't because that's not cool. But the other thing is, right, it, you also have all of the attendant buildings that have to go along with supporting that along the river and so those properties would have also been taken as well so yes. 125 15,000 families i think you said yeah 15,000 families over 125,000 residents and by the way at least initially its first couple decades of existence the tva didn't go about this nicely a guy just showed up and said, hey, you're going to need to get off this land. They went to court. Oh, okay. And by the way, folks, um, I'm, I'm completely shocked. Me and I forgot to mention this. The TVA 
actually has its own police department. Oh, that's right. Yes. They have the, the like their own law enforcement many private agency. entities they have. Yes. Okay. So I'm sure they showed up to to um, remove people from a farm. Those people said we're not going and they said, OK, well, here's a lawsuit. And by the yeah. way, if you are so dirt poor that your dirt doesn't produce anything, you're not going to be able to fight that in court. No, like they, they're going to bring a lawsuit and you're going to capitulate because there's no way that you can afford to fight. Also, the TBA had no problem, okay, uh, flooding uh, historic Native American uh, uh, sites, including burial sites, and many early American Revolution era settlements. It's gone. Gone. Underwater. Yes. And by the way, for those of you who are wondering, when the TVA was challenged in federal courts, the United States Supreme Court in the case of Ashwander versus the Tennessee Valley Authority said that the United States Congress using what authority, Nia? Um, in your notes, it says under the War Powers Clause. Uh, but there was one other you need to read up earlier. Uh, sorry, missing it. The court noted that regulating commerce among the states. Oh, the Commerce, the commerce Clause. clause. <laughs> the Commerce Clause. I think it's interesting, War Powers Clause. I uh, guess that's the war on the Depression. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, the, the Supreme Court was actually basically trying to give uh, the federal government multiple bullets in its gun um, by mentioning the War Powers Clause. Okay. Although Commerce Clause really makes the most sense. You're talking yes. about several states. Yes. You're talking the, about the, the, the delivery the, power across that. And I should have known because it's, it's your favorite. Okay. Well, it's not necessarily my favorite, but it's the, <laughs> hey, it's when the overriding doubt, clause. I, I, I tell my students, <laughs> and, and, and I told. If I you're actually, in a law student, for all the law students who are listening to this, if you're in a class, and somebody says, "What's your constitutional basis for that?" Just lead with the commerce clause. Commerce clause, and make yeah. them disprove you, because <laughs> you're going to be right ninety-nine point four percent of the time. <laughs> I mean, particularly in the period between 1937 and like the early 1990s, right? Yeah, you just say, just say commerce, commerce clause. clause and say it all derisively like they should know that. When they, yeah, when they say, what's your authority? You say, commerce Come clause. This is the commerce clause. And then take a drink of your beer and walk off like, right? Yeah, right? Sure. right? And then make them, make them wonder about their life choices. I'm just saying. But, but, <laughs> but one of the other interesting things that should be noted is the Roosevelt administration's um, arguments in federal court during this period of time, um, they started using war powers. And this was before the United States was even in World War II, right? This is before World War II was even in World War II. 1936? Yeah, yeah right? Was okay. it, I, don't, I don't know if Poland was invaded in- What, 37? Yeah. Right? Okay, so Nia's looking that up. Yep. Yeah. When did Germany invade uh, Poland? 
39. Okay. Oh, 39, right? Yeah. I, mean, I was like 30. Yeah. 39. So we're a couple, we're, we're a couple years out, right? Okay. Right. But the Roosevelt administration was already beginning to use that as a justification. Okay. Um, which I was just like, well, well and I mean, anybody who thinks that the war on terror isn't the same thing, like, yes, that's exactly I mean, presidents discover a war, quote, quote, war. Nixon war. had his war on drugs. Okay. And, 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 right, and, and then you and, can and, do all kinds of stuff justified under that. Because generally, as we discussed in a previous podcast episode, one of the rules of justiciability is the political questions doctrine. And what in one of the cases that is considered a quote unquote political question that the Supreme Court typically won't get involved with is decisions about war. Right. right? That's up to the well, That's theoretically, up the, it's up to Congress. Yeah, right. Who often but, takes that ball and punts it over to the yes, White House. Right. So I mean, but so, yeah. Um can the other the other uh um I think big criticism that you have listed here that I'd like to mention before we round out the, the episode is sort of the discrimination aspect of this. Something that we need to keep in mind in, in this time period, um, African-Americans had little to no rights. Um, uh, women of either, or well, of any, I should say any um, race, because it also included Native American women as well, had absolutely no rights, practically. Uh, they had the right to vote, but that's it. So they would have been, um, they were not hired in great numbers. Women were not hired in very many numbers at all. Now, what's interesting is that the textile plants that came along as a result of this hired lots of women. Women, yes. So, uh, but we but, still but have a, a, a problem with folks of color. Finding the jobs, jobs were, yeah. The, the the Tennessee Valley jobs were segregated. Yeah, segregated by race, segregated by gender, right? And that's and that was on, and, and and they were well into the 1970s, Nia. Right. Right. I saw in here that you said in 1987 they Seven. settled a lawsuit. Lawsuit. Yes. Like okay. 1987, people. That's 87. Yes. That is, you know, 50 years yes. after the thing started. Yes. Uh, I guess we ought to get around to treating people equally. Yeah, maybe that would be a good idea, chucklehead. Um, but so that is a thing that that one has to um, to keep in mind. However, I will I would like to end on a positive note, if we could. Yes. Um, which is that the TVA recognized unions. Yes, and that's yes. uh that is a that was not hugely common in giant corporations right like i i i don't know if ford's folks were unionized but i would bet if they were it wasn't much so, so you yes. know what i mean so unions yes. it, it, it was it was a big deal and it, it actually was part of the criticism that the TVA was quote unquote socialist and communist. <laughs> right. Cause they, they, they agreed that unions should have, uh, that, that there should be some power. You know, collective bargaining. Yes. Right. <laughs> so yeah, maybe a negative. That's also a positive. Hey, thanks Augie. Thanks for talking to me about this. Oh, Hey, this is great. Uh, love the, uh, love the discussion. Um, and as me and Nia mentioned listeners, uh, in the future, uh, we might, um, pull on a couple more strings 
um, uh, that are part of the New Deal. Cool. So, Thank you. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.